Welcome, everyone. I am Andrew Duckworth, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our special festive edition podcast to round off our series for the year of 2021. We hope you've enjoyed our knowledge translation work here at the Journal over the past year, including our podcasts, which have had two special edition series this year. We've had our insights from the US series with some orthopedic giants from the US discussing their specialty areas and giving their own insights into the pandemic. In our other special edition series, we've heard from many of our specialty editors here at the Journal, where they've given us all a great behind-the-scenes look into the amazing work they do here as well as highlighting some key recent papers from their specialty area. So to finish off the year, today I'm delighted to be again joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the Journal, Professor Farah Stad, who over the next 20-30 minutes will be giving us his overview of the past year, including maybe discussing some ongoing effects of the pandemic it's having on our specialty, highlighting some key papers we've published this year at the Journal, and finally what we can expect and hopefully look forward to in 2022. Many thanks for joining us, Prof. It's great. Thanks for inviting me and uh, always look forward to this. Thanks, Prof. Uh, so when I was preparing this, I thought back to a year ago and, and where we were at the end of 2020. Uh, and, you know, another year's passed. And, you know, the, the past year really has focused on emerging from the pandemic as best we can, not just for the world as a whole, but for our healthcare systems, our specialty, and also for our team here that journal. What do you feel, Prof, have been the biggest achievements and challenges over the past year for our specialty, really? No, well, Andrew, it's been tough. Little did we know in March or February 2020, that we would still be in the midst of a pandemic and still mounting emergency responses. You know, and as as we record this, I've spent half my day with COVID-related meetings and considering what happens to elective surgery over the next few weeks and quite how we're going to continue to look after our patients. Mm. So I think it's been a horribly challenging time, even as we've re-emerged from the, the depths of the first couple of waves there are still huge challenges, particularly for our patients. I mean, our, our patients have truly suffered by being delayed, by not having access to surgery, and to a certain extent, by a lot of our procedures being inappropriately deprioritized. You know, elective surgery is not optional surgery, as I've said many times before. And so for, for many of our patients and the massive backlog that there is in the UK, but also worldwide of patients who haven't had access to care, it's a huge amount of suffering. It's uh, some measurable harm. And and frankly, a group of people who are coming to us less mobile, yeah. less fit, less active, and potentially getting less good outcomes. I think that's interesting, probably. I was going to ask you about that. I think there's, that's definitely the feeling I'm getting from my elective colleagues is that people coming up for surgery have been waiting so long. It's a more difficult operation. They're less, well, de- deconditioned, shall we say, coming up for their operation. And actually, the outcomes of this are probably going to be more severe than we actually probably expect in some ways, aren't they, in the long term? Yeah, there, there are all these you know, unintended consequences of mounting the COVID response and dealing with cancer surgery and the so-called P2 surgery in other specialties that, that have rendered some very important, very effective orthopedic procedures, particularly, you know, I focus on hip and knee replacement, yeah. but there are many others, of course, fallen by the wayside in many centers. We've been very fortunate, I have to say, in London that I think we've managed to do more than in most places. But when I look particularly at, at Ireland and Wales and, you know, some parts of Scotland, it's really been pretty grim yeah. for our patients. And then there are knock-on effects, you know, you know, the challenge doesn't stop there. You know, we must keep patients at the, the center of everything we do. But the reality, it's it's been a torrid time for our trainees. From that phase where they got sent to do other stuff, where their sort of whole identity was relatively challenged, we've then got this period where we're not quite operating like we did before, not as efficiently as before, as we said, on a different group of patients, perhaps not so fit. And so our trainees, and you know, that's the next generation of people who are going to look after all of us, haven't had the training that they necessarily would have expected. 
And, you know, in terms of the journal, of course, we're a lot about research, about changing practice. And research studies have really struggled. They got stopped. Research funding got diverted towards COVID to a certain extent. And so research studies have either been delayed or sometimes completely compromised. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of talking about our trainees and, and our colleagues as well, Profit. So you mentioned it in our toll of this idea of well-being. I think it has really taken a toll on everybody really in different ways and people in different situations. But again, that's something that I think is lingering on, isn't it really? And just the, the longer this goes on, the harder it sort of gets really. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, we are surrounded by a stellar group of people, both medical and non-medical professionals who have risen to the challenge very, very effectively, but but there's a limit to everybody's tolerance. And, and I look around me right now and, you know, we're, this is a end of year Christmas time. And when we approached last Christmas, it was again another wave and more resilience needed, more hands to the fore to, to help everybody. And I think this time I look around and actually our colleagues are exhausted. I agree. And, I agree. and, that's, and that's not, you know, I've focused on elective surgery, but, you know, recognize our non-elective surgery has also been incredibly busy recently. So in, in reality, I think we do need to look after our trainees, our colleagues, and actually everybody around us, because the medical profession has been challenged by everything they've had to do. And also increasingly, I think, challenged by uncertainty. You know, it, it's tough to cope with not knowing what's coming next and quite how the decisions are being made around you, because we focus a lot on science and data at the journal, but actually the decisions being made around us aren't always based on either strong data or good science. And politics, of course, plays a big role. I think that's right. And I think if you try and sometimes rationalise some of the decisions made, it, it gets increasingly hard, hard to do that, doesn't it, for, for us? I know, I agree. So well, if you move on, Prof, mate, we wanted just before we talk about the highlight papers you've kindly picked for us, I just wanted to sort of maybe touch briefly and to mention two things, really. First of all, the BJO, our gold open access journal, and really how that has really gone from strength to strength uh, over the past year or so. I don't even think last time we spoke like this, it was in its first year mm-hmm. and it had a tremendous influx of papers. And, you know, it's a big credit to the publishing team, to our team at the Society and at the journals who've been working from home, have adapted new ways of working, that they've really helped us manage to launch a new journal that's now really in the public consciousness that's getting the the good papers that we can't fit into BJJ or BJR and now getting an increasing number of direct submissions because people recognize it's got a, you know, a slick review process, some very good reviewers and a good editorial team. You know, Alex Little's risen to the fore and helped me with BJO, but actually it's tremendous. We're turning papers around quickly. We're publishing them in a very neat style. You know, the journals and the society have a reputation for And it's had tremendous impact so far. It's on PubMed now. And I think we're looking forward in due course to getting it an impact factor and really getting it to rise to where it belongs. It has really been a meteoric rise for it, hasn't it, in terms of how quickly it has achieved a lot of the goals it wanted to achieve in such a short period of time. And I agree. I think when you see that people are actually, it's not just, you know, going to the BGO from the BJJ, people are directly submitting there because they, of the quality. Of, you, see, you can see that with the quality of the research that's now published in there. And sort of related to that, Prof, I also wanted to just take a minute to discuss two amazing new digital products that have been launched by the uh, BJ Publishing recently, and that's Ortho Media and Ortho Search, which I know our colleague Emma Vodden has had a huge amount of input into, and they're two really exciting platforms, aren't they? Absolutely. Big kudos to Emma and Richard Hollingworth and the team for, you know, tremendous amount of work to do this. And this is part of the society and the journals it's offering. I mean, I think, you know, Ortho Search, you finally have 
a platform for searching that's designed for orthopedic surgeons. This is not a generic thing. It is designed to help you find the orthopedic material you need. And it's it's not all about getting you to the journal mm. or the BJJ Society. It's all about getting you to find the best material in orthopedics. It's genuinely neutral from that perspective, but it will help all researchers. It'll help people who are trying to improve their orthopedic education from that point of view. And Orthomedia, likewise, is going to be a tremendous resource because there is one central resource that's easily accessible, well presented, that can give you the products of multiple meetings, you know, multiple outputs from various places and bring it all together. At the end of the day, what we're all after is easily digestible material that lets you see, learn, assimilate what you need to do for the question that you're trying to address at that time. And we, we recognize that whilst the BJJ is the ultimate in terms of practice changing quality research, there's a whole load of material around that from presentations to standards to materials produced by societies to guide their members that all comes together and also mm. bringing all that into a bigger mass guides practice. So it's, it's important to have that there. So, so any of our listeners and readers who have yet to access Orthomedia, great resource and Orthosearch, they will love. I, I couldn't agree more, Prof. And I think, like saying with Orthosearch, it really is for us, it's for orthopedic surgeons and the, the breadth of what it covers, but actually quite concisely in many ways and draws all those resources together for us is, is quite unique. And the alerts as well that it provides in terms of covering a lot of journals that I wouldn't generally maybe month to month look at, but actually not really missing anything out. No, I think it's like you say, from a completely independent way, it's brilliant. And I couldn't agree more, but sort of talking about, you know, the, the high quality research from the BJJ, I think the, if we move on to the four papers you've picked for us, I think it really does highlight the quality of what's being published in the journal these days. Uh, and the first uh, we, you, you've picked for us is from the European Bone and Joint Infection Society and is a practical guide for clinicians providing a definition for periprosthetic joint infection. It really does present a sort of novel three-level approach to diagnosis based on the most robust evidence available and which will really be useful to clinicians in daily practice. I think this is critical. And this isn't the typical sort of paper you find in BJJ, but this is going to be a seminal paper. Yeah, uh, And, you know, we all recognize it's a tricky problem defining infection. I've written a couple of editorials about it. First of all, 2012, and again in two, late 2018, early 2019, again, pr profiling how complex this issue is and how, quite frankly, having got something we could all work with in 2013, it all went a little bit horribly wrong in 2018. And this is the infection world recalibrating and coming out with something that the clinician out there can actually understand and use looking at infection as unlikely, likely, or confirmed. Because that's the level we're at right now. Let's not yeah. get lost with conflicted tests and, you know, mm. the, the madness of using D-dimer as the main focus of infection and undermining the role of culture. I think we're in a better place now with this. And I think we've got to bear in mind for reporting, we cannot keep changing yeah. this definition. So, you know, we, we have the 2013 definition. Now I think we've got this excellent paper, the beautiful infographic that goes with it that I think everybody should look at. And that should be the standard for the next few years until we really learn more and understand more. But if we're not all using the same definition, it's going to be incredibly difficult to compare studies, to compare what happens longitudinally over generations. And there's, there's no question that this has limitations, but in terms of 
what we have out there right now that's pragmatic, it's sensible, and I think it's something that everybody needs to get used to. It's the best we've got. No, I couldn't agree more, Prof. And I think, like you say, not only for helping your day stay clinically, and actually that is reality, isn't it? The way that they define those three categories is is what we see day to day. That's real. You know, that's what we're all we're all dealing with. But also, as you say, in terms of research, allowing us to actually categorize patients in a reasonable way, it be- makes us better understand what we're trying to do. And like you say, the infographic and even the figure that's in the paper is is very clearly and nicely laid out and is very good in terms of allowing us to sort of define these different categories. So I think it's a, it's not a normal paper we would potentially publish, but it is so so different, isn't it, in terms of the impact it will have moving forward. So Prof, we move on to the next paper. This is from the team in Christchurch, New Zealand, and reports on the lifetime risk of revision following total hip replacement. And this paper provides a nice approach using data from the New Zealand Joint Registry uh, as it considers lifetime risk of revision as the primary outcome rather than just survival rates at a sort of a set time point, which is probably what we're more used to. And an interesting study, and again, an example of the breadth of type of papers we publish as well with a big registry study like this, but having a really important message. Absolutely. And I, you know, I deliberately picked this and those who've seen my criticisms of some of the use of registry papers over the years will perhaps be surprised, but this is a great use of registry data. And as I've mentioned already, we need to put patients at the center of what we're doing. And yes. so the metrics that we need to get out of these big data sets need to be relevant to patients. And being able to say to a patient that, look, if you have this operation, your risk of having another operation in 10 years or in your lifetime is X, is actually really valuable information. You know, right now, a lot of patients still believe if they have a joint replacement, they need to come back for another one in 10 years. We yes. all recognize, and this paper confirms that. The younger you are, the higher your risk of needing another operation within 10 years. But actually, it's a real credit to the orthopedic community that even if you're 50 years old, your risk of a revision in your lifetime is still under 30%, 27%. Which is is remarkable, actually. You know, that means when we're doing a hip replacement on a 50-year-old, we're not guaranteeing that patient another operation. Now, there are nuances within that, mm. the fitness of the patient, the type of implants that are used. You know, Let's not get lost from the fact that the detail really matters, including who does the operation and how they do it. But those are important metrics. And I think the group in New Zealand have done this nicely for hips. They've also now done it for knees. It's not the first time it's been done. The Oxford group of links in the UK, the NJR with HES data. But I think this is a nice long follow-up of a very good registry and the New Zealand team should be really congratulated for that. No, absolutely, Prof. And I think, like you say, it does provide really useful but understandable information from not only us, but for our patients as well. And that was one of the key findings that you've highlighted there that I read, you know, lifetime risk of revision surgery was 27.6% in those aged 46 to 50. That's a really useful bit of information. And certainly probably not maybe five, 10 years ago, what we would often say to patients, well, if you have a joint replacement, then you're more than likely going to need another revision surgery. But that gives you something really tangible and interesting to tell them, doesn't it? No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's worse if you're a man. So you know, yes. bear, that, bear, bear that in mind. <laughs> of course, always. <laughs> so, Rob, we move on to the next paper. And again, you know, another example of the, the quality of the research that the, the journal is producing. And this is the, the paper from our colleagues in Glasgow and reports the five-year outcomes of their RCT comparing assisted versus conventional medial uni-knee replacement. And it, and it does really seem to be, to my reading anyway, at the moment, the only prospective randomized midterm level data in this area that we've got, you know, in, in, in sort of growing. Uh, and it's great to see a long-term, mid-long-term data in RCTs like this. No, no. And this, you know, this is great. As you know, we've pushed hard 
for good research methodology. We've pushed hard to move trauma and orthopedics towards level one studies and level one data. And this is pretty visionary stuff from Matthew Banger and Mark Blythe Mm -hmm. to actually get this going when they did and compare what was then really a very novel technique. In fact, they only had access to this technique for research. They didn't have access to it clinically and to compare it with the standard and they've published along the way, of course, and you know, sh- shown their differences in, in gait and in function in the high active individuals. But actually to go out to five years and show a lower reoperation rate with the use of the robotic arm is, is impressive. I mean, there are lots of really interesting things about this, but I think as an example of level one data in orthopedics, it's really good. I think it's also interesting in that it's, they're clearly very good at yes. doing unis. You know, their, their results, even that, you know, the results in the control group are way better yeah. than most studies and the registries. That's perhaps a weakness yeah. of this paper that actually they're really good surgeons. So, you know, how does this translate outside? But I think, as you know, there, there's increasing interest. We've published a lot yeah. of papers on robotic technology recently, mm-hmm. but having level one data to this to back up, we published uh, the Australian registry data as mm-hmm. well in the last two years, showing that the uni's out to three years are doing better for aseptic loosening with robotic arm assistance. Mm. We've got this fantastic operation, unicompartmental arthroplasty, that is bedeviled by the technical complexity of it mm. and people being unable to reproduce what they set out to do yeah. with the operation. So there's, I think there's great hope that uh, unis will grow yeah. If, yeah. if Mark Blythe's data is replicated by other studies. And as you know, there are, there are similar studies uh, being done to replicate this, including one in our center. And there's also now some good cohort studies that are going out beyond that. So I think really positive to see a randomized study out to five years in the journal. I know, I couldn't agree more profound. Before we move on to the final RCT, do you think that's where maybe robotic surgery is going to have its advantage? If if you know if this data is reproducible, which I'm sure it will be across other centres, is that where the sort of value for money, shall we say, might come in with robotic surgery if we do have this lower reintervention rate? Do you think that that's where it may it may hang its hat? Yeah, so I think we've got to be careful with robotic surgery as a whole in that in that this refers to one particular device and one particular product. And we oh. mustn't we must never lump them all together. Yeah. But with this particular robotic arm technology, we've seen great results from many centers uh now. And this is great out to five years with the uni. Mm-hmm. I think we, we'll see more and more. The real big question is going to be generalizability. Yeah. Yeah. So so in the hands of the interested. This seems to work very well, seems to enhance the ability to hit a target and deliver yeah. a result and deliver an outcome. If the registries prove that it's generalizable, that's where the cost effectiveness will come. Yeah. Because although there is an extra outlay at the beginning, there are disposables. If you're reducing revision rates and improving function, that's going to be a big win at a population level. And you know we've got a great group of surgeons in this study. Yeah. If we take a group of surgeons doing lower volumes, perhaps generally not able to get the implants where they want quite so well, give them a technology which removes that variability, I suspect that'll make a big difference. Big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Prof, so moving on to the final paper, which is the excellent RCT from the team in Oslo in Norway that compared non-operative management uh, to fixation for vo- with volatile plates for patients um, 65 years and older with a displaced disarrayed fracture. And, and great to see important question, you know, I know there's been literature in this area before, but a really high quality RCT and, and sort of highlighting the importance of looking at normative treatment in all these geriatric patients who sustain these, these type of fractures. No, I really enjoyed this study. It's, I mean, it's a great group and it's an example of the, the change in trauma surgery over the last decade, decade and a half, in that we've really taken some of these tricky questions 
and run randomized studies, be it in Scandinavia, be it in the Netherlands, be it in the UK. It's become the way forward. And, and this belief that orthopedics and trauma surgeons couldn't do this, I think, has been truly dispelled. Now, these guys have done a great job. And actually, they've, they've really shown that in this older population, fixation, fun though it may be for surgeons, uh, doesn't have a no. significant, you know, it doesn't doesn't really make that much of a difference at one year. In fact, the outcome of non-operative management is non-inferior, which I think is a really important message. There's a flip side to this, which I think really interesting that we mustn't lose sight of, is that there may be an advantage early on to fixation. And that's where the rub comes with younger patients and those at work and so on, where, where that difference may come in. So I think you've got to always look at the bigger detail but really important to do these studies. And, you know, we've, we've got a very expensive healthcare system to deal with. And in these over 65s, we should follow the advice of this study. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's important that we we are asking these questions and not just for just the radius fractures, but for other fractures as well. No, I couldn't agree more, Prof. So just conscious of time, Prof, you know, just be finishing up, I thought we'd just maybe consider the future, you know, and what do you feel are the, the positives we can take forward? I mean, the past couple of weeks have been t- tough and a bit negative all, all around in the UK, unfortunately, and across across Europe and the world. But as you know, as we head into the next year, what what do you think the future holds and maybe what are our challenges moving forward? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the the, the reality is we've learned a lot from mm. the pandemic. And although it's still continuing to challenge us, we've learned how to do more remote consultations. We've learned how to transfer imaging more easily. We've learned to follow up our patients in different ways. So I think clinical care will be enhanced by some of these things that will stay with us. I, I think we will be able to show through the pandemic that we need more standalone hospitals for elective orthopedic surgery, for example, and that we need to prioritize orthopedic care. So I think we've got to be mindful that that all those things, but actually I think, you know, we're in a good place as as a profession. We've got a resilient group of people. We must continue to look after each other, look after our trainees. We must continue to do good research and we must continue to educate well and to deliver good training. And I have to say, we at the journal are trying to support all those facets. You know, we're keen to encourage good research, good training, good education and to enhance everything about the orthopedic and trauma community. So I'd still be positive. I think we will get through this rough period worldwide, no matter what stage you are in the country where you're listening, we will soon be all together again. We'll be able to travel more often and uh, interface in the way we would wish. And I think we will continue to do the good things we do in terms of research and we continue to produce good publications and we'll continue to educate. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Prof. It's a really nice, nice positive to really finish on there. So and that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for your, you know, a great overview of what has been, again, a, a difficult and challenging year for everyone. And it's always really informative and always great to talk to you. So thanks for joining us, Prof. Th- thank you. And thanks for doing a great job again this year. Thanks, Prof. And finally, as ever, we'd like to wish all of our listeners and the wider community a very happy festive period and all the very best for 2022. We at The Journal, thank you so much for your ongoing support. Stay safe and well, everyone. And thanks for listening.